0: Good morning. Isaiah 6 is where we're going to be, if you'll find that place in your Bible. Um, Matt said some very kind words, it is mutual. Our, our friendship and our ministry together now is not Matt coming to me as a guy, how, old, how much older am I? I think I'm 20 years older than you, but now it's a mutual friendship. Uh, I have called him on many occasions and am grateful for him and I'm grateful for this church and I just want to take you in if I can, just let me look at you and take all of this in. It is just so good to see you. Most of you I've never seen before, but many of you I've seen for a long time. Our brother Eric Patton, uh, we shared yesterday at the retreat, we we go back 40 plus years uh, because we grew up in this city. It is so good to see you. Now, we're gonna get to Isaiah 6, um, but I do want to ask you to pray for something. You have a prayer request for the week that I wanna put before you, okay? So, Edgefield Baptist Church and Trinity Church, the Lord orchestrated the coming together of two congregations, both of them bringing something to each other, Both of them needing something really and then bringing something to each other and the Lord orchestrated this and we're sitting here today in the heart of our city seeing what God is doing from that wonderful work of bringing two congregations together. Now, I want you to know that this kind of thing can be, I think it's actually needed in several other places in our city that I'm aware of, some of them. I've talked to pastors, I've talked to churches, and it's kind of not coming together. It's kind of, they're missing. Some of it we hope is coming together, but the vision is this, local congregations, healthy churches, congregations dotted all over our city, being renewed in the gospel, doing ministry on their turf, not one, not two, but dotted, all over the place in Nashville to the glory of God. And so you're experiencing the work of God to bring two congregations together for that purpose, a healthy local congregation in our city. And I want you to pray. Will you promise me this week, at least once, maybe three times you by yourself or with someone will offer up a prayer that the Lord would orchestrate that kind of coming together of congregations that need each other, whatever that need looks like, whether it's just two churches need to be together, whether it is building-related, something, would you just pray? Because I know these people and we're praying and and we want the Lord to orchestrate that. So if you'll do that, just say yes. That's all you need to say. Okay, thank you for doing that. Isaiah chapter 6 is where we are today. The book of Isaiah, it's a book of hope. You've got to remember that from the beginning. Because when you read Isaiah, you read a lot of judgment. You read a lot of hard, hard words. But you've got to know from the beginning. And you've got to hold on to the fact that it's a book of hope. The book of Isaiah is a book about trust. God is calling his people all through it to trust him. And to be faithful to him. In fact, the biggest problem in Isaiah... Is that God's people were unfaithful? So it's a book that is calling them back to trust and faithfulness. In the end, it's hope, but I'm telling you, along the way, there's a lot of judgment. And I'm gonna call it discipline, because the Lord never gives up on his people, but he disciplines. And that's all through Isaiah. We come to Isaiah 6, and what we have is another message. There is a message of hope. We're going to read it in a moment. I want you to be listening for the hope. It's at the very, well, it's all throughout the first part, but it's at the very, very end. It's a message of judgment, then hope. But Isaiah 6 is also about the messenger. So what the Lord is doing in Isaiah 6 is he is raising up the messenger who's going to take his message to his people and ultimately to the world. So it's it's about the message of the Lord, it's about the messenger of the Lord. And then Isaiah 6 is one more thing before we read. It's a pattern. It's the experience of one prophet named Isaiah, but it serves as a pattern for a person who becomes a Christian. It serves as a pattern for a congregation like this one that is renewed in the gospel to be about God's mission wherever the congregation is. So I want you to listen for those things, the message, the messenger, and the pattern. Stand with me in honor of God's word, Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called And the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, "...keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people." This is God's Word. You may be seated. This is Isaiah's conversion, we could call it. It's an appropriate term, I think. It's Isaiah's call, and the call and the conversion is for the purpose of speaking the message of the Lord to His people. Now, the context of Isaiah 6, really of all of Isaiah, is spiritual decline. God's people are unfaithful to him at this time. And therefore, God's people being unfaithful are not fulfilling the purpose which is to bring glory to him among the nations. This is why God raised up his people in the first place. Chapter 1, the Lord says, "My children." He's a broken-hearted father. "My children," I raised you. I reared you. But you have rebelled against me. Chapter three, he says, My people, I supported you. I supplied your needs. But you have rejected my glorious presence. Chapter five, he says, My vineyard. I planted you, I tended to you, but you have borne wild grapes, unfit for good wine. Now, specifically, what's happening is God's people had grown proud. He blessed them. They were prosperous. But they neglected his word. They corrupted their worship. If you'd entered into one of the worship services of God's people at this time, it wouldn't be all about the Lord. It wouldn't just be a display of the elements of the Lord's Supper or a pulpit like this. It was a mixture of pagan religion. They rejected the word of the Lord and became corrupt in their worship. They practiced injustice toward one another, especially the widows And the orphans, they left them on their own and would not care for them as the Lord had told them to do. And so their hearts were dull and their ears were stopped up and their eyes were blind. We're seeing hints of this along as we read in in chapter 6. The context is decline, which reminds me, us, that we need the spirit of Christ always renewing us. We can never believe that we've come to a place in the Christian life or in the congregation where we don't need the Spirit of the Lord to renew the congregation and renew our hearts before the Lord. It's why over and over, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, we come to the table and we hear the Word and we sing the songs and we pray the prayers because the Spirit uses this to renew us. We're always in need of renewal. We are new and need to be renewed. In Isaiah's time shows us that because they were in spiritual decline. Chapter 6, where we are today, after he says, my children, my people, my vineyard, now he says, my messenger. I raise you up to take my message to the people because my people are to take the message to the nations. And that is the rest of Isaiah. So Isaiah 6 is a message about judgment and hope, and it's about the messenger that the Lord raised up. And we're going to take it in reverse order. We're going to start with the second half and talk about the message and then end with the first half, the messenger. So the message, it's found in, in verses 9 through 13, if you'll look there. And he talks about how the, the people are going to keep on hearing, but they're not going to understand. What are they hearing? Now remember that the word of the Lord has already been spoken to these people at this point. In fact, for generations and centuries, since Moses, these people have heard the voice of the Lord. They've had the word of the Lord. And we could sum it up this way. Now, that's the law of God, and it's book after book and many words. But we could sum it up like this. The Lord was saying to his people, trust me and obey me. Everything he gave them to do was about trusting him and obeying him. If you read the Old Testament and you think these are just arbitrary laws. They're just, they're just, you know, plucked from air rules. What is God talking about here? No, every one of them is God's way of saying, trust me and obey me. Every one of them says, know me and love me. All of God's word to his people prior to Isaiah was about honoring the Lord and enjoying The covenant relationship with him and the words of the Lord. These are the words that they have neglected. These are the words that they have rejected. And so in verse 9, that's the message, the word, that they're going to keep on hearing and keep on seeing. But the message is, it's a strange message if you were paying close attention, but look at it if you weren't. There at verse 9, you'll see how strange this is. Strange message because while hearing, they won't understand. While seeing, they will not perceive. Their hearts, their ears, their eyes would not see and comprehend and receive spiritual truth. They would not turn and repent and be healed. It's one of the worst states a person can be in. It is the worst state, not one of It is the worst state a person can be in to not be able to perceive spiritual truth. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And it's an awful state not to be able to perceive the words from the mouth of the Lord, the spiritual food. In fact, verse 10 is even stranger. Because you'll see there it says, make, that first word in the version I'm reading, Make the heart of this people dull. The message is going to make them this way. It's an astounding and an awakening statement. It's foreign to our ears that the message of the Lord would make us this way. What's happening? It's like Paul explained in Romans chapter 1. One of the aspects of God's judgment on people is when they reject him and his word, he gives them over to the hardness of their heart and they only become harder. And then when the word of God is preached, it has the effect of further hardening them, leading to their further rejection of him without the intervening grace of God. Humans will not, cannot, hear, see, understand, turn, and be healed. We need the grace of God. That's why we're praying for God's spirit to work when we gather on the Lord's Day or when you are sharing the gospel with a friend. You're praying for the spirit to work because the heart is already dull. God must work and his grace must be there. And it is, thank the Lord. So verses 9 and 10 The message is, go and tell my people that they are under my judgment and the judgment is seen in their continued spiritual dullness and decline. Verse 11, Isaiah wants to know how long, how long, Lord, am I going to have to preach this message that's only going to further harden their hearts? In verses 11 and 12, the Lord says, until the discipline is complete. These verses describe what's coming coming for Israel and for Judah. Until the discipline is complete. What's coming for Israel and Judah is this. The Assyrians, the Babylonians are going to be used by God for discipline of this people to come in and take their cities and to take their people captive, which actually happened in history, 720-ish, then again 568 B.C. Read when you go home today, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, the second half of those two books. You'll read about this. In other words, captivity, exile is coming. This will be God's discipline upon this people for rejecting. That's how long he's going to have to do it until it happens. This message goes forth. Verse 13, the judgment is going to run its course. It's going to look like the judgment, the discipline of God on his people is going to be so strong, it's going to look like a total loss. A tenth will remain and it'll be burned again. It's going to look like a total loss. And you're thinking right now, okay, you started by saying Isaiah is a book of hope. When are we getting there? Right now. A tenth will remain. There will be a remnant kept by God's grace. And look what it says at the very end of verse 13. It will look like a single stump. It will look like a single stump after a thorough clearing of a forest. Of God's people a remnant will be left and we all know what can grow from a stump I'm not a yard guy I'm not a farmer guy I don't know much of anything about that but when I bought my house 20 years ago there were these plants out front that I didn't like and I went at them with clippers and that didn't do it I went at them with an axe And I chopped and cut, and I thought, they're gone. And I left a little, almost indiscernible stump. And a year later, green shoots coming up. Verse 13, the stump will be left, and that stump is a holy seed. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word means offspring. There'll be a stump left after God's discipline of his people. And that stump is a holy offspring, a holy seed. Well, who and what is this holy seed, this stump? Well, some say that's the people of God who are going to be left after the discipline of the Lord in Isaiah's day. They're going to survive the exile and they're going to be, they're going to return to the city of Jerusalem with great singing, faithful to the Lord. We know that happened. If you've read much of the Old Testament, people like Ezra and Nehemiah, during the exile, they came back and, in the exile, there were some faithful people while it was going on, like Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Mordecai, Esther. These are all names in the Bible. These are people who are faithful. They are the remnant of God. They stayed true. Yes, they're a holy seed, an offspring from this stump that's left. But we can also see something else. This prophecy, this is anticipating a Messiah a Savior who will come and save his people. This is the true holy seed of Israel. And I just say don't separate the two because surely in history God kept his people like the ones we just mentioned who were faithful to him and he brought them back to to the city and they, they remained his people on this earth. And from this people came the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is the holy seed, the stump. The word unfolds. And in the, as the word unfolds, we see light and we see the holy the seed. The holy seed is Jesus Christ. He grows, he remains, he's a, he's a vine, he says. He, from him grows a vineyard, his people, a church who are fruitful. And the message of Isaiah that Isaiah preached ends on this beautiful word of hope that a holy seed will come from this, like a stump, it'll grow. And here we are today, the recipients of that, and that's who we're preaching. We're preaching the message of the holy seed who came from this people, who's the Savior and the Messiah of the world. Verses 9 through 13, if, if you don't read until the very end, if you don't wait until the very last sentence, it can be very fatalistic, but it's not. It's a message that God's purpose and God's judgment, God's discipline to purge his people and to cleanse them and God's plan to save a people will go forward. Nothing will thwart it. And it will lead to the coming of the the Messiah. It's a message of hope in the end. So wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. Hope in the Lord. You may be experiencing somewhat of a purging now in your own life. Come to the Lord. Stay with the Lord. Get your brothers and sisters around you and say, Pray for me so that I don't walk away. Pray that God will help me stay true to Him and to His Word. Turn to Him. Hear Him. Heed Him. This morning, listen to Him. He will get His work done, He will save all the way to the end. Stay with the Lord. Now, back to Isaiah himself. That's the message. And now the messenger, Isaiah, he is the messenger to deliver this message. There's an eternal weight to the message of the gospel. There's an eternal, there's a, there's a spiritual weight. There's a weight of glory to the message of Christ. And so God has to prepare the messenger. It, it requires a significant kind of preparation to be the messenger of the Lord, taking this message of the gospel When I was in middle school, I actually, over in West Nashville, I grew up around here. So over in West Nashville, I actually had my first paying job in middle school. It was my brother's paper route, but he ran track for a season, so he let me take over. And I had a blast delivering newspapers in West Nashville. But I had never read a newspaper in my life. I had no emotional attachment to the events and current affairs, none whatsoever. I just knew there was a couple of dollars waiting for me at the end of the week. And so in the late 1970s, I was happy to throw newspapers. Not so with Isaiah and with God's people. He had to have his own experience with the grace of God so that he could be a messenger fit for delivering this message to the world. God had to make him by his grace into a suitable messenger. It's very much like what we read in 2 Corinthians 5. We are first reconciled to God by his grace. We're made right with God through Jesus Christ. And then, and then he delivers to us the message of reconciliation. And so Isaiah verses 1 through 9, the messenger is being prepared. This is Isaiah's experience, and it's a pattern. What we're going to go through now is really how somebody becomes a Christian. So Matt shared just a moment ago, he spoke directly to people who may not know Christ yet. You may be trying to figure out what this is about. You may have come in today, or someone may have invited you, and you're trying to figure out Christianity. We're going to go through something right now that is somewhat of a pattern. It's not the, not the details, okay? Not the details. You don't have to have a vision to become a Christian but somewhat of a pattern for someone who becomes a Christian. It's certainly a a pattern for for the Christian who continues to walk with Christ and have an ongoing renewal. And it certainly is a pattern for a congregation like this one as God makes us fit to be messengers in our own city. This is the work that God wanted for his people Israel, but they wouldn't respond to him. He did it to Isaiah. He does it to us today. It's a work of grace. It's, there are five aspects that we're going to see. First, the first aspect of Isaiah's experience here is found in verse 1. It's, a, it's one that's most often overlooked, and it is this. It's, a, it's the death to false hope. The death to false hope. Look, look at the first line. In the year that King Uzziah died. Well, who's King Uzziah? Second Chronicles chapter 26. Again, go home today. Read the second half of 2 Chronicles, second half of 2 Kings. Read that. You'll find out what's going on historically. But King Uzziah was a pretty good king to start with. He did right in the eyes of the Lord, but he grew strong. And when he grew strong, this is a quote, he grew proud. Oh, man, that's the way we are. He grew strong. He grew proud. He grew so proud, God had a distinction. He said, you may be the king. He said to all of his kings, you may be the king, but this is what you can't do. You can't act like a priest. God wanted to distinguish between his kings and his priests. And he said, kings don't act like priests, but Uzziah was strong and prosperous. God's hand of blessing was on him. And so he decided one day he was going to act like a priest. He went in to make the offer of sacrifice on the altar. And the other priest stood against him and said, don't do this. This is not a good thing. Do, um, we're warning you, do not do this. And he grew angry because he was proud. And so the Lord gave him leprosy. And Uzziah, who started out as a good king, spent the rest of his years in isolation. What's that all about? Well, the people wanted a king. And the first time they wanted a king, they said, we want a king so we can be like all the other nations. We want to put our hope in a king. Anytime you want to do something because it'll make you like other people, you can pretty much count on the fact that you're resting your hope on something that you shouldn't. That's exactly what's happening here. They wanted to trust a king because they didn't want to trust the Lord to protect them and to provide for them. And so Isaiah says, it was in the year that King Uzziah died. All men and women die. And everything false that we put our hope in will die. And the fact that it dies is a grace from God because it prepares us to rest the full weight of our hope on Christ who died but rose again. So the, the first step in being prepared, the first grace of God in getting us to Christ as Christians or getting us as a congregation To be about his mission in a city is to die to all of our false hopes. The only thing that lasts is Christ and his word. And then second, Isaiah had a vision of the Lord. Verses one through four. These are some of the most famous verses in the Bible. Isaiah saw the Lord on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filling the temple, it's a vision. Seraphim calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy. It's a powerful vision. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. That means he's a sovereign king. That's what he saw, first of all. He's the sovereign king. The king Uzziah has died, but the Lord is king. He's high and lifted up. It's just reinforcing his sovereignty. The Lord is above all earthly powers. What we're seeing here is Christ, we know this. I'm gonna gonna go ahead and give you the, the rest of the story at the beginning here. We're seeing Christ, John chapter 12. Isaiah 6 is quoted in John chapter 12. And John, the gospel writer, says that Isaiah said this because he saw ahead and he spoke of Christ. This is, he's speaking, he's seeing Jesus Christ here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in the New Testament says the glory of God is in the face of Christ. So when Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord filling the temple, he's seeing the Lord Christ. The book of Ephesians in the New Testament says Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and is seated in heaven on a throne far above all rule and authority and dominion in every name. Philippians chapter 2 says that Christ is exalted. He's been given a name that's above every name. He's been given the name Lord. He's the sovereign Lord. Colossians 3 says that Jesus has been raised and seated at the right hand of God. So as the story unfolds, we see that what Isaiah is seeing here, this vision of the holiness of God, he's, he's seeing the vision of Christ. In the temple, verses 1 and 3, the whole temple was filled and the whole earth was full of the presence and the glory of the Lord. Isaiah has so much to say about these heavenly beings. They're called seraphim. They're, they actually mean, the word seraphim means the burning ones. They're on fire. They're on fire as they're, as they're proclaiming the glory of the Lord. And what they do communicates the very nature of God himself to Isaiah. The vision of God has to be mediated by seraphim. God is so holy that Isaiah can't have direct contact with him because because he's so holy he couldn't live through that. It has to be mediated through the seraphim. And so the seraphim have six wings and two, they cover their faces because again, God is so holy that not even the heavenly beings can look directly upon the face of God we finally, as the story unfolds, as the, as the word unfolds and the light comes, we finally can look into the face of Jesus Christ to see God. But not at this point. They can't do it. So they're covering their faces. And they're covering their feet. Because God's holiness, the ground around God is so holy. They can't stand there without a covering. And they flew around and they called out, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Volumes could be written about this. Oh, that the Holy Spirit would just give us a sense of it right now. Just a foretaste, just a bit of understanding sitting right here today. Holy, holy, holy. It's become too familiar to us. Lord, if you would right now just open our eyes, open our hearts to just sense a bit of it. We can't comprehend it all, but if you would give us in this moment just a a slight taste of the holiness that is being described here holy, holy, holy it's the highest and most complete perfection there is, holy, holy, holy sets God in a category of his own holy, holy, holy keeps you from ever taking the Lord's name in vain holy, holy, holy keeps you from ever using his name cheaply holy, holy, holy awakens you Holy, 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 the name of God. It does something when you see it. It touches you. It, it, it transforms you. It means that he's perfect in all of his attributes. As A.W. Tozer said, all of everything that God is, is perfect. Every attribute of God, he's all of it. We, we don't even know how to comprehend God. We think that we can slice up God. We think God's a pie, a pie chart. That's what God is. He's like 15% love, and maybe he's another 20% compassion. And No, God is 100% of everything God is. And everything that he is, all the, all the attributes of God, he is holy. That means perfect in every single one of them. He's perfect in all of his ways. He's morally perfect. He's just. He's right. He's pure. He's completely other. Wish I had an hour to keep going wish we could just keep describing him. I don't know how to do it. We don't know how to describe this. Have you tried? I I dare you this week, take an hour. Just see if you can take a walk for an hour and say as many things as you can say about God to describe his holiness. It's impossible to describe it. Holy, holy, holy. He's holy of holies. I don't mean to say anything about, anything negative about our own worship. I don't mean to say anything negative about our own preaching about our own words, about God's holiness. I don't mean to say anything negative about our responses to God when we worship, but we do see something here that is very real and it's also very unsettling. We see something here that's very uncomfortable. We see the effect of seeing and hearing about God's holiness and what it did to Isaiah. What did it do to Isaiah? That's the third part. The third work of God's grace after we have false hope, our hopes are dashed, and then we become, get to see just a small amount of the holiness of God, the third work of God's grace in our lives is the conviction of sin. Verse 5, I said, this is what I said after that. Just stop right there. What would you imagine he would say? Take, lift your eyes off the page. What would you imagine he would say? Based on everything you've ever experienced in evangelical Christianity, what would you imagine that that Isaiah would say after he saw holy, holy, holy? What would he say? Would it be something like this? Awesome. What would he say? Cool. Great worship today. He said, woe is me. For I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king. This is not a state of being where he finds himself without culpability. There are those states. We can say, "Woe, innocent victims of war, abuse, criminal activity, physical, mental conditions of disease. Things really do happen to us, you know. Things really do happen to us that we do not contribute to. There are are people on the receiving end of bad things and they are not culpable. And you could say of those people, whoa. But that's not what Isaiah is talking about here. What he means is, spiritually, morally, as he stands before God, he is aware of his own sin. What he means is, woe is me, I am culpable in this moment. Isaiah is not a self-righteous prophet who's pointing out the sins of others. We have way too much of that going on. Isaiah himself is a sinner. He is lost. He is unclean. Isaiah is not standing next to the people of Jerusalem comparing himself because if he did, he may not have drawn the conclusion that he is a sinner. He may have said, oh Lord, I'm glad I'm not like those sinners. Isaiah is standing before the Lord, not the people. And he is seeing the holiness of God, not the unholiness of the people. And that's why he sees and he knows that he's undone. King Uzziah died. Verse 5, Isaiah has seen the king. And he says, woe is me. Like the psalmist who said, O oh Lord, if you count our sins against us, who can stand? Or, O oh Lord, don't enter judgment with your servant for no one is righteous before you. Or Paul, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or the tax collector, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or Peter, in the boat with Jesus, depart from me for I'm a sinner. Or the apostle Paul, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's a reality for us all. We cannot cover up. We cannot make up. Stop running. Stop ignoring. Stop distracting yourself from this sense of your own sin. There's so much twisting of doctrine and so much shifting of morality and so much brokenness in relationships and so much deconstruction of the faith or of one's faith Simply to avoid the feeling of woe is me, come to terms with it. Because that too is a gift of grace. That sense of being undone before God is a gift of grace. Because it has an intention. It's designed by a loving heavenly father to move you somewhere. Which is the next aspect of God's grace in Isaiah's life. The cleansing of sin. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. One of the seraphim flew to him because this, this gospel, this message is brought by a messenger, a mediator, and it's, it comes from God himself because this is the initiative of God. This is, we are not clawing our way back to God. God. God is taking the initiative to come to us. In fact, this very moment, this very moment, God is initiating in your life. This very moment with the word of God, he is coming to you with a message. The seraphim comes with a burning coal from the altar because this is a divine provision. No one is making up for his or her sin. No one can cover up his or her sin. That's not the way we get rid of it. What happens is the Lord Himself comes with a divine provision, this time in Isaiah's vision, a burning coal from the altar. And we know that Jesus Christ is God sent from God to deal with our sin and to bring to us this divine provision for the cleansing of our sins. And He touched His mouth. It's a divine application of this provision of forgiveness to Isaiah and the Holy Spirit comes and touches our hearts to open them. And he says, your guilt is taken away and your sin is, a, is atoned for. This is a divine verdict. This is, this is from the mouth of God when he says, I declare you, I declare you forgiven. It's a divine substitute where Jesus Christ steps in our place and bore the wrath of God in our place and also declared us with his own righteousness so that we can stand before God clean. The word unfolds and the light comes. Isaiah is going to tell us later this is this is this is Jesus himself the one Isaiah 53 who was pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquity. He is our guilt offering, he bore our sin. In Romans 3, he's called a propitiation. It's that big word. I don't know if you, surely you've learned it somewhere along the way, but maybe this is the first time you're at church or you're new to church. You've never heard this. Propitiation. It's a beautiful word. Someone said, Scott, you shouldn't, or not just Scott, preachers, you shouldn't use big theological terms that people don't understand. I say, no, use the big theological terms that people don't understand. Just explain them. Propitiation. Propitiation one of the most beautiful words in the world. It means that you and I are sinners. And we are under the wrath of God for our sin. And Jesus Christ is the propitiation in in two ways. He is the one who goes to the cross and bears the wrath of God against our sin. It's an atoning sacrifice. That's what the word actually means. It's an atoning sacrifice. He sacrificed his body to bear the wrath of God against our sin in his own body. And therefore setting us free. That's the second aspect of propitiation. He is setting us free, forgiven and clean and righteous before God so that we can live with him. It's beautiful. This is Jesus. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. It's 1 Peter 3. He suffered for our sin. We, the unrighteous, they might bring us to God. This is the gospel. This comes from the holy seed. This is, why the, this is why Isaiah 6 ends with hope. The holy seed, Jesus, has done this for us. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Will you receive this? That's the only hope of being right with God. It's the joy of your soul. It's the only way you can get out of bed every single morning and have any sense of peace. is to know that your sins are atoned for that Christ covered them. Do you have these moments in your life when this became real to you? Not only my own conversion, but I was listening to a testimony one years, decades ago. I wrote these words to a song right here in my notes because, it, because I can't get this out of my head. Whenever I, whenever I think about the power of the gospel to cleanse a heart. Decades ago, I was, I was sitting in a, a church meeting and a choir came. It was the most unlikely choir you'd ever seen. Almost every person in that choir was a, was a felon, formerly incarcerated, and they stood up to sing. And you know, what are you going to sing? You're a ex-incarcerated, born again, person who knows that you've got every reason to have to hang your head low because of what you've done in your life, but now you've got every reason to hang your head high because you've been cleansed by Christ and they started singing this song. I couldn't shake it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an old song. Don't look it up. You'll, you'll laugh. You'll say that's an outdated tune and I don't care because it's just absolutely beautiful words. Oh, be glad, be glad. Every debt that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Oh, be glad, be glad, be glad. I can't shake it. I kind of want to sing it. But we have a rule at my church. The preacher doesn't sing. The singer doesn't preach, (laughs) but the preacher doesn't sing. But do you believe that? Are you glad? Be glad. Every debt that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be glad, be glad, be glad. Trust Christ. Somebody here today will talk to you if you don't know Christ and and the heart is beginning to burn, and you're seeing the need, somebody here today will be happy to talk to you about that. And then the fifth and final, verses eight and nine, the work of grace is the call and the commission. The call and the commission. The false hope has been dashed. God's holiness has been seen. There's been a deep-hearted conviction of sin. And then Isaiah was touched and cleansed and he's got assurance before the Lord and he's glad. And then comes the call and the commission, verse nine. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go. Just to unpack it briefly, verse eight, it's a Trinitarian call. I and us, I and us, I don't think he's just looking around at the seraphim, the the Lord. I don't think the Lord is just looking around at the heavenly beings. Because the Father, God the Father, one God, three persons, the Father has purposed the salvation of his people and no plan of his will be thwarted. And the Son, God the Son, fully God, fully man, came from the Father and was that propitiation for our sins. That's the divine provision. And the Spirit, God the Spirit, is taking that burning coal of the gospel and applying it to your heart, searing it and opening it so it can be cleansed by the grace of the Lord. Who will go for us? It's a sending plan. The Father sent the Son. The Son is sending His church this morning at Grace Community Church. What's being preached is the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus said, go. Same text, same message from different text, go. It's a representative plan. Who will go for us? That's the question, isn't it, right here in East Nashville? It's the question in South Nashville and West Nashville and North Nashville and the United States and around the world, who's going to go for us? Who's going to represent us? Verse 8, the conversion is complete. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. There's the evidence of grace. What is the evidence of grace? That a man, a woman, a congregation can go from woe is me to send me the saving transforming grace of God it's real it's evident in Christians it's evident in congregations the reborn converted Christian the renewed and being renewed congregation says send us send me it all happens by the transforming grace of God have you lost any hope lately I hope so if it means you'll turn to Christ? Do you see the holiness of God? In some way, has it caused you to see your own sin and be convicted of it? Will you open up your heart your mind to the cleansing work of Jesus Christ? And then as it happens and that work of grace is there, may it lead this congregation to say, send me. God loves you. God has you here sovereignly. By his grace, for his purposes, you belong here, Edgefield Church. His spirit is in you. His spirit is with you. Jesus is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. He'll be with you into the ends of the earth. You've got his word. You've got each other. You've got the spirit. What else do you need? And you're planted right here. May God in his grace continue, continue to bring renewal that you would be the send me congregation and that there will be more of you dotted throughout East Nashville and South and West and North around this city. More of us dotted around moving from woe is me to send me by the beautiful work of God's grace. Father in heaven, we pray you'd make it so. Cause the word today to land in the way that you intend It's amazing the work you can do as one God who can see the multitude of thoughts and feelings in every heart in this room at one time. Only you can do that and only you can minister in that way. And so we ask you to do it in the name of Jesus. Amen.